from KQED. Hey everyone, I'm Emmanuel. I'm Kali. And I'm Jamidra. And we're the hosts of The Cooler, your weekly dose of pop culture commentary. Today we're joined by Mara Wilson, a name you might remember from Mrs. Doubtfire, Matilda, Miracle on 34th Street. She's since traded Hollywood for a life of writing and being a badass performer at storytelling and comedy shows. Her new book, Where Am I Now?, takes us through her childhood fame and everything that has followed. Welcome to The Cooler, Mara. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming. Yeah, that's my pleasure. Yes. So Mara, your book, Where Am I Now?, Yes. Everybody says that they have a book inside them. Like, when were you like, this book has to come out? Well, I always knew I was going to write a book at some point. Uh, I wasn't sure what book it would be first. You know, I wasn't sure which one it would be. I had a young adult book I was working on. I had a graphic novel I was working on. I had a bunch of different things I was working on. And and so I think that uh, it was really just kind of about what people wanted to hear from me first, what there was the most interest in, because I'm really just happy when I'm writing. So uh, I started writing and blogging and doing things online uh, probably about five years ago. And then uh, I wrote an article for Cracked about child stars and why so many of them have breakdowns. And uh, after that, I got a lot of people saying like, hey, why don't you write something about your life? (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I should focus on that first. You know, maybe I should do that. And also that would give me kind of a way to sort of take control of my own narrative. Because, you know, when you when you are in the public eye and then you disappear, people make up stories about you. People right. kind of make up their own stories about where they think you went and what they think you you did. And and I wanted to sort of reclaim that. I feel like this is also kind of paying tribute to a lot of the people that I have. I've worked with who were really wonderful and to the memory of my mother. But that was something I didn't actually think about until I was like midway through the book. Your sister loves goddess cards and tarot and all this stuff. Yeah, And you talk about how one time she was giving you a reading and she told you the following. Quote, it's really important to imagine your creative pursuits as the healing process by which we fight our demons. Yeah. And I was wondering if writing this book ended up feeling like that for you? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. There were a lot of things in there. I think like writing the chapter about OCD, I, I, you know, I was crying while I was writing it because for the first time I felt... Like this wasn't happening to me. It was almost like it was happening to somebody I knew. And I was recounting that story. And and so I kind of I, I cried on, you know, this this child's behalf and not on my own, you know, because I wouldn't cry for my um, for my own sake. But I just thought, you know, if this had happened to, you know, any children that I know and and it just made me wish that I had, you know, been able to get treatment earlier. It just wasn't possible at that time. But, you know, it really made me wish that I had. But it definitely, yeah, it was definitely cathartic in a lot of ways. And uh, writing about my mom, too, was was very cathartic. And a lot of these things, some of these things were things that were so hard to write about or think about before. But now they're it's a little bit easier. Isn't that funny, though, what you say? It's it's sometimes so hard to have empathy for yourself. It is. And you have to stand back and see yourself totally. as others do. And that's really tricky. Yeah, you really do. You have to, you know, you have to do do that thing where you, like, think about yourself as a child yeah. and think, like, would I say this to somebody that age? You know, would you say that to a little girl, to a little boy, to a little kid? Would you do that? And, uh, yeah, that's like a that's like a therapy exercise people do. Mm-hmm. And, and it really does help. 
It really does help because uh, I think that so much in my childhood, a lot of things that happened to me, I was just like, oh, I'm on a foot fetish one- website and I'm 12. Ugh. This is funny. Oh, that part Ugh. blew my mind. That's that a distressing thought. Yeah. Well, I, I just thought that was kind of funny because, you know, I was I was 12 and I was like, <laughs> fetishes, that's ridiculous. <laughs> and then as an adult, my friends were like, Mara, that's that's child porn. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I When you look it at it like mm-hmm. Yeah. And if that happened to any any children that, you know. Anyone that I'm related to, any kids that I babysat or taught, like, I would be enraged. I would be furious. I don't even know what I would be doing just because I would be so enraged. Mm-hmm. But because it happened to me, it's just like, oh, yeah, it's kind of a strange, funny thing that happened to me. Yeah. It's yeah. hard to be the Gail King to our own Oprah. You know? <laughs> That's a great way to put it. It's important, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we pe- must strive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People on the Internet are saying enough bad things about us. We can just say nice things because who else is going yeah. to do that? Exactly. I think right. Carrie Fisher said once that, like, whoever said you are your own harshest critic didn't have the Internet. Mm. <laughs> They're out there. Don't yeah. read the oh, Carrie, don't read the comments. Those eggs on Twitter. Yeah. Mm. Coming for me every day. The eggs. Or the anime avatars. A lot of anime avatars oh, are, no. are, yeah, a lot of like anime girl avatars are, are kind of creepy. Yeah. Uh, give an anime a bad name. I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, eggs. and eggs. <laughs> I'll never look at eggs the same way. <laughs> they must be vegans. They're like, Stay I'm going to take down eggs from the inside. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, one of the biggest things that I took away from listening to your book is that your mom was a total badass. So let me just say that right there. <laughs> I think she's total, she was a total badass. Um, and Thank then you. also, I was thinking about your childhood and like how you grew up in Burbank, California. And I think that if you, like, if do you think that you would have ever gotten to film acting if it wasn't for like the, your proximity to sort of like film acting and being in Burbank and no. being in, you would have done something No, else. you know, nobody's ever asked me that before. And I really don't think that I would have. I think I would have had a big drama nerd phase, mm-hmm. which I also had anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> but I think that, that <laughs> I, I, no, I don't think I would have been in film. I don't think I would have if we'd, you know, if we'd, you know, stayed in Chicago where, you know, my parents went to college. I, I, I don't think I would have. It was just sort of a matter of circumstance. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately I am grateful for having had the opportunity to act because, you know, it, it, I got to meet so many wonderful people and I got to do so many cool things and I got to play these characters and especially Matilda, a character that I really loved. And and I think, you know, sometimes I think I should have stopped acting sooner. Because uh, after Matilda, I mean, I was kind of burned out on acting. I felt I was sad about my mom. I needed to deal with that. And also, you know, I didn't make a movie that was ever as successful ever again. So I think sometimes I think that I should have stopped then. But other times I'm like, oh, well, you know, I met wonderful people afterwards. Mm-hmm. I I did have a good time filming. Maybe I should have just kept going. Maybe I wouldn't change anything. I don't know. <laughs> I kind of go back and forth on that. When people think of child actors, generally the idea is there's some – Parent on the sidelines being like pageant mom or pageant dad being like forcing, yeah, Rose. Yeah. yeah, forcing a kid to do something that they don't want to do because of money or whatever. But your story is the opposite of that. You had to convince your family <laughs> to get into it. Yeah. And I love your family's motto of the only stars are in the sky. Yeah. And like keeping you grounded. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if you didn't have someone on set keeping you in check all that time when people are throwing compliments at you and, and all this stuff? As oh, a, as yeah. I, I would have become a monster. <laughs> I, <think. laughs> I mean, maybe not because I was always kind of anxious and I've always kind of had like imposter syndrome to a degree. So so maybe not fully, but uh, I always take things to extremes, I think. Let me put it this way. I don't think that I would have turned into a person that I can live with. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that I that I am OK with most days. I would have turned into a person that I would hate. I, I would have really, really hated myself. I think that, you know, that kind of narcissism is 
you know, it's it's like a balloon. You you know, it requires you need air to blow into it. It can but it can very easily be let go. It can very easily be popped. It can very easily. Uh, I'm stretching the metaphor here, but you know what I mean. Like it's, <laughs> it's full it's of hot air. Yeah, it's full of hot air. But it's but you know, with with narcissism, you're just holding like it's like somebody else is always holding the balloon. Somebody else is controlling right. how much or how little you 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 let somebody do that. So I think that it it would have been I would have had people doing things for me all the time, and I would have grown accustomed to that, and then I wouldn't have known what to do on my own. I wouldn't have really grown up. I think that parents are incredibly important in that situation. Parents, guardians. One of the most important things famous people and, and especially famous children need is somebody to tell them when they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Look at you, Justin Bieber. <laughs> in the book, there are so many kind of lovely, sad, often really bittersweet anecdotes about the life of growing up on screen. And are there any memories that you have that are just pure happiness of that time? Yeah, there definitely are. There definitely are some. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, filming Matilda. There was one scene, the scene where we're chasing Miss Trunchbull out of the building. It was just like a big food fight. It was just <laughs> big, you know. And uh, you know, fun memories like that. A lot of you know, hanging out of the Devito's house and and you know, having good time with them. Uh, I remember, like, during some of the country club scenes in Doubtfire, we actually got to just go swimming one day. And I I just, like, I, like, had a, I had a party. I was, like, making up songs by myself. Nice. I was I was just splashing around. I thought, I don't know, there was something really novel about a pool, even though I grew up in Southern California where <laughs> yeah. there are pools everywhere. <laughs> and that was and in Berkeley, right? That, 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 uh, those country club scenes were I in think Berkeley, so. I think. I yeah, think so. Club, yeah. yeah, I love Berkeley. I also have a lot of happy memories of the Bay Area. I mean, growing up in, in Southern California anyway, uh, most Southern Californians have this sort of grass is always greener kind of thing about the Bay Area. I mean, everybody knows that San Francisco is technically better than L.A. Um, <laughs> oh, on, on record. Can we just hear? Yeah. On a lot of levels. I'm from L.A. I'm from L.A. So I can say that. And I do. I do. I do appreciate L.A., you know, and I do. And I do. I do love it. I've come to love it. But for a long time, I was just like, OK, there's not even, you know, there's, there's, there's not even not even comparison. But. But yeah, I think that a lot of us, when we were young, we kind of it was it was this sort of like Jerusalem, like oh, Northern California is where I'm going to escape to, and yeah. so I have a lot of happy memories of just kind of wandering around San Francisco and like going to the hills above the ocean, and a lot of like yeah, like practically like pastoral uh, memories of of the Bay Area, uh, and it just being this like magical place for me when I was little. That's that's definitely something. And you happen yeah. to be hanging out with one of. Our best comedians. Yeah, ever. right. So right. that probably helped as well. Yeah, that was the thing. I was like, I was like, oh, I mean, people have been asking about Robin uh, nonstop on the on the book tour. Just everybody, I bet. everybody loved him. Everybody mm-hmm. did. But I knew, like, especially when I was like, when I know when I come to San Francisco, people are going to be, you know, they're, yeah. they're still going to be mourning him because he was such a part of the city and yeah. he loved the city so much. Yeah. That renaming of the tunnel near the Rainbow Tunnel. Have you gone through? Did they do that? They yeah. did. After, yeah, oh, yeah, just after the Golden Gate Bridge, it's now officially named there as a sign, Robin Williams Tunnel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. It's, he did so much. Like he did so much for San Francisco too. He was like, like he was like to San Francisco what like Prince was to Minnesota. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or Minneapolis. You know, like like it was. Yeah, he was. He was, yeah, he was a wonderful guy. He was just as genuine and kind and, you know, dedicated to giving back that, you know, the the person that everybody thought he was. And he was funny. He, you know, could just keep going. He could just keep making jokes. It was really, yeah, he was, he was, uh, he was really a wonderful guy. And like you said in the book, a side of him that people don't know about as much is his shyness because he's such a performer and Mm -hmm. so extroverted seeming. Mm -hmm. And you said that 
both you and your mom noticed yeah. this he, about him. She noticed that first because I think he kind of came alive with kids. Mm-hmm. I think that he could be silly with us, so he would be silly with us, you know? Yeah. And and I think that he – but he definitely did have this, like, very gentle fatherly side to him. But, but yeah, there's – I mean, there's that saying that actors are the opposite of people, you know, because they're not afraid to do anything in front of a large group, but get them one on one. And I I mean, I actually have a little bit of that myself. I get really shy one on one. You know, I've told people that I would rather do a live interview on TV than go on a date because, mm-hmm. you know, the first one, you, you know how it's going to go. The second one, you don't. Uh, and I, I think that that's a lot of performers that have that. And I think that he, he definitely was. He came alive and he he was he was just the consummate performer. He really was. And he really loved it. Very clearly loved it. I love this line in in your book where you're talking about something that you think might be a date and you're like, oh, no, it's one on one. I have to be myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I don't want to go. Oh, man. (laughs) It's too much pressure to be yourself. (laughs) Just stay in character. (laughs) Speaking of being yourself, uh, you made a decision to walk away from acting. And I know Matilda is probably the character that people recognize you most uh, for. Do you feel like because you talked a lot in the book about this. Do you feel like you finally sort of like gotten out of the shadow of Matilda and you don't really feel sort of like tied to her well, in I, your own creative work now? I do still feel tied to her, but I don't see that as a bad thing anymore. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the way somebody with like a loving family might see their parents as a teenager. You know, like, oh, God, I can't get under, you know. They're Mom. Just, they're overshadowing me. and or, or like a big sister, you know, just like, oh, you're overshadowing me. And, oh, yeah. you know, you just kind of get you get kind of whiny because you want to distance yourself. You want to have your own identity. You want to be yourself. Mm-hmm. But you can't. And that is very much how I felt with Matilda. I felt like we were tied together. And I felt like everybody liked her more than me. It was a little bit like when I went to my public high school and people were like, oh, it's Joel Wilson's sister. You know, mm. they knew me as they knew me as like as the younger sister of my of my older brothers. And I think that's kind of how I felt with Matilda for a very long time. I felt like I was, you know, I was tied to her and everybody liked her more than they liked me. And my identity was kind of, you know, obfuscated. It was it was she overshadowed me. And uh, now I just kind of I, I kind of I I like that I have been her because I think about just what an impact she made mm-hmm. and how this movie was something like I mean, like people on Tumblr love Matilda so hard. So and, much. Yeah, so hard. <laughs> and like I have like like at every every book signing that I've done, I've said, OK, how many of you are librarians? And without fail, there are always a couple librarians oh, there. Oh, my God. Really? Because, yeah, because they saw Matilda at a young age and they were just like, this is a character who loves reading. And I think it speaks to the fact that we don't have – we didn't have a lot of movies back then. Maybe we have more now about smart girls doing right. their own mm-hmm. thing, yeah. you know. And and I think that that was something that people were kind of starved for. I mean, I don't think you really see that regardless of gender. You don't see people who are rewarded for being intellectual and challenging authority necessarily. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's, it's, it's tied to different – things but I think that this was something that really resonated with people and it made me it made me appreciative you know and so I came around to it again you know the way you appreciate your family ideally if you know you have that kind of a good family it that's sort of how I feel now that I've come to appreciate it and and appreciate my association with it I I see it as a privilege with the distance mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> it definitely took distance it definitely took therapy but you know I I I now I'm like oh yeah I, I get it now I get it now Speaking of people on the internet and how they engage with Matilda, 
think you know where this is going. (laughs) There's a phenomenon that you call the Matilda Horror Complex. Oh, yeah. Where people, for some reason, get really despondent or even angry. Yeah. When they realize that you're a grown woman now. Yeah. You wear bras and all of that. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Even. How dare Matilda. Right? There's, yeah, there's, I, I. Like a few years ago, I remember when like pictures of me started leaking out. It was all it was all like, you know, Matilda has boobs now. My childhood is ruined. Oh, my God. Like, yeah. There's a lot of that. Like, look at how how old she is now. You won't believe what she looks like now. You know, there's there's like a lot of link bait of like me and then like some like hideously photoshopped person saying like, you know, child stars who went underwent uh, horrifying transformations oh, and things like that. And of course, it'll be like me. And then next to it, it'll be like Emma Watson being like child stars who nailed growing up uh, and i'm like oh way to compare us because uh, everything's a contest right, right? Yeah. everything is everything is and that's the thing uh that's really annoying but uh i was always worried about talking about anything related to sexuality for a very long time i didn't want to talk about the fact that i'd that i drank that you know that i'd had sex that i'd done these things like things that you know most human beings do mm-hmm. because i was afraid i thought that people still saw me as a child and you know it's kind of like not wanting, you know, again, I, I, and I, I come back to this analogy a lot because this is what it's like. It is kind of like having growing up with really, really strict parents, having mm-hmm. a fan base. It's like having strict parents, except they don't love you unconditionally <laughs> and they do, you know, they don't. And so so it, it can be taken away at any time. Well, actually, yeah. that leads me to ask, do you see in what's happening with social media today and how prevalent social media is, do you kind of see this like weird extension or evolution of the kind of gross scrutiny that you underwent as a young person? Or is that a stretch too far? No, I think that everybody, I mean, I think that a lot of people are sort of held to the same standards that I was, you know, and I think that... Uh, you know, my, my friend Lisa Jacob, who was in um, who was in Mrs. Doubtfire with me, who played my older sister, mm. she wrote this blog post. Uh, she's a wonderful writer. She wrote a book called uh, You Look Like That Girl. It's a great book. And, uh, <laughs> great title. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's – uh, yeah, we, 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 we kind of laughed at how similar our, our books were uh, – or our books and our book titles, I guess. She wrote a blog post when the NSA thing broke saying, it's strange to me that people thought their lives were private. Because my life has never been private. Mm-hmm. And and I think that you assume that your life is private, but but it just isn't. And I read that and the whole time I was just like, yeah, yeah, totally. I remember like I think somebody who worked at Google a few years ago said if you don't want people to know the things that you're doing, maybe – maybe rethink doing them mm-hmm. which is kind of a it's like that's like a nothing yeah. to hide nothing it's to like, fear kind of yeah, thing. yeah it which is an intense thing to say yeah. you know but that's kind of the way that i've had to live you know mm-hmm. uh i sometimes my friends will talk about things they you know they'll do just like you know the crazy shenanigans they get up to and i'm just like i i couldn't do that right. you know i i wouldn't even necessarily want to do these things but just the fact that i couldn't yeah. is, you know, makes yeah. me a little sad. And then you wonder if you don't want to do them because you know you can't. Yeah, yeah, totally. The option was never there in the first place. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And that's made me, I've had to, you know, be philosophical about it. So you're basically like living in an Orwell novel where it's like, <laughs> someone's always watching me, I'm being monitored. Well, there were, I mean, it's it's sort of, you know, it's it's child stars are raised in captivity. You know, that's that's kind of mm-hmm. what it is. And I, but I think also for a very long time, I didn't think I was famous. I, and I still kind of don't know because I definitely mean something to a very specific subset of the population. You know, I think that there are people, 
um, usually women who who know like exactly who I am and are like huge fans of mine. But then there are like way more people who are just like, who's that? You know, <laughs> and who, who hear Mara Wilson and they're just like, who's that? I don't know. I don't care. You know, a lot of people don't know who I am and uh, and don't care. So. So sometimes I, I wonder, you know, and I didn't want to get a big head when I was younger. I was like, okay, well, well, am I famous? Am I not? And it, it took me a very long time to gauge what level of fame and celebrity I was at exactly. Something that almost happened to make you even more famous was Fox wanted you to be like Shirley Temple. And they sent yeah. you a crate of her <laughs> movies or whatever. Yeah. And your mom was like, no, not happening. And you also seemed to feel that way as well. And I love what you wrote in your book, which it said... Being cute meant being controlled. Yeah. And I just loved everything you had to say about the word cute. And I yeah. wonder if you could speak a little on that term and what it meant to you then as a kid hearing it all the time and what it means to you now. When I was young and I heard and somebody called me cute, it felt condescending. It felt like people were trivializing me. They weren't taking me seriously. And I was a kid who took everything seriously. Mm -hmm. I, I took everything seriously and I wanted to be taken seriously. And I knew that I wasn't. I was old enough to understand that adults were being condescending, that adults didn't see me as a person. So basically it was kind of like hearing over and over again, you know, like your, your mom's friends being like – Oh, I remember when you were this big. You'll oh, always gosh, be that yeah. one to me. It was like the whole world was saying that to mm -hmm. me, you know? And it also felt like I was just kind of being reduced to something because what is cuteness? Cuteness is, you know, performative. It's not – It's and it's also not something you have any control over. So it right. wasn't something I could take pride in, being cute. I, I could take pride in, you know, a scene where, like, if I had to cry on cue. Okay, so I, I cried on cue. I, I could do that. You know, that was that was something that I, I thought – like I had to work on it, but I was proud of being cute. I had no control over it. And I, I didn't see myself as cute. I didn't see myself as pretty. You know, I I was I was I, I didn't really think of myself one way or the other. I just thought of myself as as a person. And so but also I know that my mother really didn't like when people emphasized looks over anything else. Mm -hmm. She really did not like that. You know, being being attractive, being beautiful, that coming across that way. That just wasn't one of her core values at all. She had mm -hmm. no interest in it. So that was also something that I had absorbed from her. I kind of – we were just – we were – I was very close with my mother growing up and I was a lot like her. And I think there were times where I still kind of didn't know that I was allowed to have my own opinions about things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I figured – and the way that she talked and like the, the, the way that she carried herself, it felt almost like what she said was the objective truth. You know, if you have a, a strong mother like that, that's that's what it's like. You know, it's and it takes you a long time to be like, oh, wait, maybe maybe this is an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> so. So, yeah, I, I think that that was definitely, you know, that was definitely something that I I struggled with and I I didn't like it. I think now now I like the word cute because it just seems friendly. It's it's non-threatening. I was actually just putting this on, on Twitter today and somebody said I like it because it's not. It doesn't have to do necessarily with attractiveness and it doesn't necessarily have to do with sexuality. Mm. So it's kind of a non-sexual, you know, kind of non-beauty standard way of complimenting somebody. <laughs> yeah. You know, you can be and you can be a person who is not classically attractive and still be cute, you know, and it's it's nice. It's definitely it's it's a compliment. It's something when I find, you know, it's it's like adorable. It's something it doesn't necessarily have to do with the way they look. So it's it's a phrase that I've come to appreciate as an adult, I think. 
I mean, also the fact that I'm five feet tall means that I, I kind of have to accept it because <laughs> if you're shorter than somebody, inevitably at some point they're going to be like, oh, you're so cute. And I so, just want to put you in my pocket. Yeah, I hear that a lot. My you sister, like, just try. My sister, yeah, my sister teases me a lot. My sister is uh, six years younger than me and six inches taller than me. So, uh, yeah, she teases me about that a lot. <laughs> but, yeah, I've, I've kind of had to make peace with it. I didn't like it as a child, but I think – it's also when I when I kind of lost my cuteness and in, in puberty, I felt like I'd kind of lost a superpower that I didn't even know I had. So mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be ungrateful for for compliments like that anymore in the future. I, I told myself, you know, I was going to actually appreciate them. That's good to hear because I feel like throughout the book you talked a little bit about like having trouble accepting and absorbing compliments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I definitely still do. I definitely still do, and it's something that I'm still trying to work on. I kind of need to soak them all in. I need to, you know, to write them down sometimes, Mm. you know, write down somebody said this thing to me today. (laughs) It can be very hard. I think humans, women in general, are just terrible accepting compliments. We're not taught how to do it. And we either deflect or we just get incredibly deflected. Totally. And we're not like we're not supposed to, you know, we're not supposed to like it's 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 the kind of, you know, the Regina George really pretty thing. (laughs) You know, it's it's immediately. Oh, so you think you're really pretty. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. That's uh. That's that's what it's like. I, I I love people who can take a compliment well. That's oh, yeah. really graciously. It's yeah. it's a yeah. superpower. It's a skill. It's very. Who was it? I think it was Mallory Ortberg. I don't know if you guys know her. She's a Bay yeah, Area. Yeah. yeah, the toast. She's she's a Bay Area legend. I remember her telling her like giving her a compliment once when I first met her in person. Just like you're a wonderful writer, or you're very smart, or I said something, and she just said thank you in a way where I just immediately got the feeling like she knew. You know, like she knew what I was telling her was dead on. She knew. She was just like, thank you. It's like that important no. period at the end of thank you instead of comma, but yeah, and then or, all oh, of these like, excuses. Like, like, I'm actually not that oh, great. Yeah. It, was just, it, was just, it was just thank you. Yeah. And I was just in awe. I was like, whoa, how did she do <laughs> that? So do that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm hoping that it comes with age. I'm hoping it's one of those things yeah. where you yeah. just learn how to take it and say, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, there's something there's a there's a clip on, uh, from Wayne's World, apparently, where Ooh. like somebody does something. Somebody told me this. I'm trying. I wish I could remember who it was. Uh, but they said, when you get a compliment, you need to be the Garth because there's a scene where Garth gets a <laughs> Yes, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's just bizarre. And Wayne is really weird about it. And Garth just goes, thanks. And, and thank just goes you. on with his life. Yeah, thank you. And goes on with his life. I love that we can find pearls of wisdom oh, in Wayne's world. world. That is yeah. my Algar, hero of all times. <laughs> We're not worthy. <laughs> So I really want to get into a little talk a little bit about mental health, because I know that you've been really open about it. And I know that there it seems to be uh, a topic right now that people are really comfortable about talking about. Yeah. Thankfully, they're they're becoming more comfortable talking about it. And one thing that you said in the book that really stuck with me is that mental health needs to be taken as seriously Mm -hmm. as physical health. Mm -hmm. And so I know that you had your aha moment in the the book you shared when you read, I think, um, I forget the name of the book. Kissing Doorknobs. Kissing Doorknobs. Yeah. Um, And just how how you felt after you knew that how yeah. you could address the all of the things you've been going through. Yeah. So um, could you talk a little bit about that and also about the work that you do now? Because I think you do work with youth around mental health issues. Yeah, I do. Uh, my friends Jenny and uh, Sarah, Jenny Jaffe and Sarah Harshorn started a, an organization called Project You Are Okay. And it's uh, mental health outreach videos and resources for young people who are dealing with it and just kind of letting them know that they're not alone and that this is something that happens to a lot of people. I mean, maybe it's just because I live in New York, but I feel like I know more people who have suffered with from mental illness than <laughs> those who have not. You know, there's there's so many people who do. And it's really, really strange to me. 
you know, how we are punished for things that we can't control. You know, I think that that's something that is is terrible. And I think that we need to be more open about this if we can. And I think that, yeah, mental health definitely, I mean, physical health as well, needs a massive reformation. But mental health is something that we need to be talking about. And we need to be taking it as seriously as physical health. And we need to be proactive about it. I mean, if it were up to me, if I could do this, I would have mental health clinics on every corner. You know, I would have as many of them as you have walk-in health clinics, you know, mm-hmm. or, or more, you know, and, and they would be well-funded and they would be, you would be able to get treatment and people would check up on you. So it's not just, okay, you're going to a hospital, you're they're throwing meds at you. I think that we also, we need to talk to people. Like there's a writer, uh, Ellen Sachs, who wrote a book called The Center Cannot Hold. And she's a mental health advocate and uh, she has suffered from schizophrenia in the past. She's also brilliant. She's a college professor. She's a lawyer. She was, I think, an Oxford scholar, a wow. brilliant, brilliant woman. Uh, and she had suffered for a very long time and been hospitalized when she would have psychotic breaks. Uh, but she says that she thinks we need to be more open about mental health and we need to realize that, you know, it's not a schizophrenic. You know, a person is not a schizophrenic. They're a person with schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. They are a person first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something I'm very lucky to have the platform that I have. And I think that it's definitely <laughs> something that I, I I can and I wish to elevate. I wish to to talk about and, and pay it forward. And I think this is something that happens and it it goes it goes unreported in a lot of marginalized communities as well, and that's definitely something we need to hear those voices too. Mm-hmm. You know, we definitely need to amplify those as best we can. Uh, so I think it's yeah, I think it's imperative to talk about mental health, and I'm glad that people are finally starting to. And you have a storytelling series in New York all about yes. <laughs> talking about anxiety, fears, and, and phobias. Yeah. Yes. What is it called? It's called What Are You Afraid Of? Yes. Uh, clearly, I like rhetorical questions. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's uh, and what we do is we we talk about uh, somebody's fears. Uh, we, you know, usually mine, uh, sometimes somebody in my family is our close friends. And then we talk to an expert on that subject. Amazing. So, yeah. So, so, you know, we talked about, uh, uh, like I, I talked about earthquakes and then I had my brother who's an earth and planetary scientist come and talk. And once we talked about my sister's fear of getting water in her ears and we had my friend's dad who's an ear, nose and throat doctor talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my friends is terrified of mall Santas. So we talked to mall Santas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, mall Santa vom- vomited on her once. So, oh, you know, no. so you would be a yeah. good reason. Mm-hmm. So we uh, we yeah, we do that. And then we we have everybody share stories and and, you know, stand up and such about uh, about their fears, which in New York is most people's anyway. So, (laughs) yeah, but I think that it's it's very much, you know, you laugh at your fears. And that's something that I think that we we are told to do when we're young, but we forget. You know, to laugh at your fears. You you learn that in Harry Potter. There's that scene in My Neighbor Totoro where they laugh and you know scare scare away the fears. It's something that like I I remember like I'll I'll come upon when I'm like reading a book with my nephew and then I'm like oh right we need to do that now. You need to make your fears ridiculous because that takes the power away from them. And I also think that learning about them and exploring them and, and gaining knowledge in that way that also makes it uh, makes them less powerful. Knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Back to Matilda again. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I definitely think that, yeah, that Matilda was sort of in line with my, you know, with my my values. And, you know, that's that's another reason why I'm glad to have been a part of it. The more you know. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> I, I see the star trailing totally. above us now. <laughs> so we are running out of time. So we're going to do a lightning round Ooh. of some silly questions that didn't make sense in the proper interview. So... <laughs> You just mentioned Harry Potter, yeah. and you mentioned it in the book a lot, and I was wondering, <laughs> yeah. two-parter. Part one, what house are you in? 
Um, I am either a Gryffindor or a Ravenclaw. Pottermore says I'm a Gryffindor. Uh, I wanted to be a Ravenclaw because that would mean I was smart. But yeah. uh, Gryffindor, I feel like, is half jocks and half social justice warriors. And so <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm, I'm I'm more of the latter, but, you know, but it's it's uh, I don't know. Pottermore says Gryffindor, but Pottermore says a lot of things. And I discount. You, them don't, all. you don't. Look, I obviously got a house I don't like. You don't so. look convinced. I think you oh, can did guess you? which one I did got. Did you get Hufflepuff? Yes, I did. I love Hufflepuffs. I almost exclusively date Hufflepuffs. Oh my god. Because they are so much fun to date. They are so much fun to date. This is like the new Myers-Briggs. Yeah, it all is. Right. It is. I'll own it. Hufflepuff um, is West Coast all the way. Totally. <laughs> the West Coast is all Hufflepuff. And yeah. I feel like this cardigan's kind of Hufflepuff. Uh, that is a very Hufflepuff yeah. cardigan, but it well, is adorable. So, yeah. Thank you. It is yeah. bright yellow and big. Yeah. Just for the listener. Canary. <laughs> <laughs> it is canary. It is. It is. The second part of the question mm-hmm. is your game clean, dirty, sport. Ooh, yes. Oh, <laughs> is it? Is it? Which one is it? Oh. I'm... So for the people who haven't read the book, <laughs> it's, a, it's a riff on Kill, Mary Screw. Clean meaning sweet romantic rose petals candles. Mm. Dirty meaning a little kinky. Sport meaning quick and hot. And so... <laughs> sport we, were, mode. we were Okay, we were 15 and none of us had had sex, you know? Okay. So, yeah. Um. So clean, dirty sport. Uh-huh. Voldemort. Oh... Hagrid, <laughs> Malfoy's dad. Malfoy's dad is sport because you you he's he's hot, but you want to get that over with. As, get in and get out. Um, uh, Voldemort is dirty. Voldemort is very dirty. Um, I I think so. I think clean clean sex with Voldemort would actually be really scary. Um, Hagrid, I think it depends. If you're if you're both drunk in you know the Hogshead or whatever, then then it's dirty, you know. Yeah. And I think. I think both could potentially be fun with Hagrid. I mean, Hagrid's not exactly my type, but, like, I could see him going either way. But I bet he'd, like, be a good, he'd be, like, a good long-term boyfriend, you know? I and make like, you a cup of tea in the morning. Yeah, <laughs> so I think, I think like, I think he could be clean, but he could be dirty, you know? Also, to go that. clean with him, it's a fire hazard because he has all that hair and there's candles. <laughs> oh, oh, That's true. So, be careful. Safety there's first. animals all around you, yeah. <laughs> Safety first. Uh, I miss that game. It was terrible. <laughs> it was so dumb. Now that I've actually had sex, I'm like, what? What the hell were we thinking? Uh, but I loved that game. <laughs> you ever so briefly mentioned elbowing JTT, Jonathan Taylor Thomas, in the crotch? Yes. Can we uh, talk about how that so, happened? Yeah. So we were, on, we were on this set and we were doing a photo shoot for Disney Adventures and it was all about like Hollywood kids. And we were all posed together. And, you know, I had three older brothers. I was used to roughhousing, you know. And so Jonathan Taylor Thomas is behind us. And like I said, I take everything seriously, even as a child. And he won't stop talking. And he's just talking. And we've met a few times. He was he was a friend, like a casual friend, you know. Um, I, I knew him. I liked him. Uh, like I couldn't see him as cute anymore because he was kind of, he he was like, you know, it was like my brother. Mm-hmm. So uh, he won't stop talking. And I'm like, oh, my God, Jonathan. And so I just elbow him quickly to be like, dude, shut up. And I just hear him go, ow. And, <laughs> and, and somebody else is like, what's wrong? And he goes, Mara elbowed me in the... The groin. Oh, <laughs> great word choice. Yeah, he was okay though. He was okay. It it was yes. It it, it did not seem to cause any lasting damage. Oh my god. <laughs> that we know uh, of. That we know. Does he have this children? True. I, don't I, so. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's <laughs> because of you. Yeah. <laughs> you talk about your lifetime habit of channeling misery into comedy yeah. in the book. What really makes you laugh right now? I I really love, and I've written stuff for them. I really love Reductress. 
Uh, they are they are very much it's it's a fake women's news magazine, and the articles <laughs> the are kind. the articles are things like uh, we're piercing my baby's tongue and here's why, or, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, you know how to make your man feel better about his terrible penis. Um, <laughs> But they're really fun, and their their podcast, uh, the Reductors podcast, is hilarious. It's really really funny. Um, yeah, I feel like there's actually there are a lot of good podcasts out there now that I've been listening to. Two Dope Queens is great. I'm oh, I love Two Dope Queens. Oh, Two Dope Queens is great, yeah. and both Phoebe and Jessica are like the coolest people yeah. in the world. I've I've met them a couple times, and both times I'm just like you're you're both so cool, <laughs> and you're funny, and you're shout pretty. out WMYC. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, yeah, that one that one is definitely amazing. I listen to a hilarious podcast. It's called. The cooler. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, he, he actually does. He does our editing. So he <laughs> I listen to it like seventeen times. Find yeah. it in all good books. Like, Jimmy, stop yeah. swallowing on the microphone. <laughs> Last question in the landing round. Uh huh. In the book you write, in L.A., I felt judged. In New York, I felt ignored. So, in San Francisco, I felt blank. Oh, welcomed. Mm. I've oh. always felt very welcomed here. Yay. I've always felt very much like no matter where I go in San Francisco, I'm not judged. I'm not ignored. It's just kind of like, well, maybe there now now there are, you know, some tech pros who kind of. Don't even get me started. Yeah. Yeah. And, my sister, them. my sister, like, yeah, she will rant and rave. <laughs> uh, we actually we went out to lunch earlier and she was like, she was like tech pros at two o'clock. And oh, yes, there were. Oh. Uh, but mm. she yeah, she she's very angry about that. Uh, but I feel like. It's very much just kind of like I can walk into any store in San Francisco and just people would just be like, hi, you know, like, how's your journey? And you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just like no matter where I go, I go to a park or something and it's just kind of like people are just like they'll just like look at me and nod just like, you know, I, I acknowledge you. It's just like everybody's, you know, it's it's just kind of like this whole namaste. Thing the light in me sees the light in you. Yeah. yeah, totally. Totally. That's that's very much the way that I've always felt in San Francisco. And that's why I've liked it. I haven't like I haven't met very many mean people in San Francisco, you know, whereas like in L.A. everybody's like super condescending and holier than thou about, you know, their cleanses or whatever. Uh, <laughs> their cleanses or their tanning and, you know, all that all that crap. But here it's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, like everything is just everyone is just, you know, seeing the spirit in all of you. And I really I really like that. I've always loved San Francisco. I really have. Don't tell New York what I said, but I <laughs> yeah. will not. They don't get this podcast. Yeah. Hear, yeah. <laughs> so in the book you write, people who choose to be vulnerable are rare. People who manage to do it well are even more so. And I have to say that you've displayed so much vulnerability in your book and here today. And we just want to thank you for all thank of that. Thank you so much. I, I try. I, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> so we outro with a song every episode. Uh-huh. And we thought we would give you the honor of selecting our outro song for this episode. Uh, if we want to make it funny, we could end with the Divinals Touch Myself, which was my favorite <laughs> song, which I mentioned was was one my favorite song when I was like 13. And so I had yes. to revise my plan of playing all my favorite songs at my funerals because that would be like it would be like that and like Little Red Corvette. And yeah, a bunch of like best really funeral filthy. ever. Yeah. yeah. Lucky. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, uh, so. So, yeah, we could definitely we could do that. That's right. We out must. That. Okay. It's, it's a requirement at this point. Yeah. Well, here it is. I touch myself. (laughs) (laughs) I just said that on air. Okay. (laughs) Thanks to our podcast papa, David Marcus. Thanks to Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs for our amazing theme song that you hear at the beginning of the show. Please subscribe on iTunes. Also, rate us if you like us. If you don't, um, you never heard this. Until next week, find us on social media. I am Excuse My Beauty without the first D on Twitter. I am at Teacup in the Bay. 
I am at Jimmy Dresses. Follow us. Favorite our stuff. Retweet. Bye. 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 Bye.